Before we dive into our text and begin our new verse-by-verse study, our new series titled The Genesis of Grace, I think it would be helpful for us all to get on the same page right from the beginning by me articulating just a couple of guidelines that I'm going to employ that's going to kind of help us get the most out of our travels through the book of Genesis. Two things in particular, two guidelines I'm going to abide by. First, my main goal as always, is to faithfully teach the text. I know that sounds simple enough, but trust me, a study of Genesis can very, very quickly roll off the rails and become unnecessarily elongated and cumbersome because a pastor fails to wed himself to this particular discipline of just faithfully teaching the text and letting the text speak for itself. It's my solid conviction that hermeneutics, solid hermeneutics, which hermeneutics is a fancy word for how uh, one interprets the Bible, as well as biblical exposition, should be a diving board and not a trampoline. It's kind of a rule of thumb that I employ. When we get to a text, we want to dive into it. We don't want to jump off of it. Instead of diving into the meaning and implications of a particular passage, which includes things that we do like examining the text's original meaning and its original language as well as the context for the original audience, it's really easy for pastors to get distracted by using a text to spring off of into a concept that the text never presented, something that God was never trying to address. In a sense, we're going to kind of employ a model where we're going to seek to keep the main thing the main thing. For example, if you're expecting, you got really excited. Oh, Genesis, this is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to an extended expose into the particulars, the nitty gritty, weighing into the weeds of the old earth and young earth debate. You're going to find yourself sorely disappointed. Now, that's not to say that we're going to avoid scientific observations, but we're only going to tackle these issues of science as the text demands and in light of the basic concept that God's seeking to communicate through the text. Additionally, I need you to know my hermeneutical position in bibliology also dictates I approach and teach a passage from its plain reading. Unless a passage itself says otherwise, It's my position, and it's critical, that we view Scripture from a literal perspective. Unless the passage says it shouldn't be viewed literally, then you should assume it should be. It's been said that when the plain sense of the text makes the most sense, anything else is nonsense. Now, as far as extrapolating deeper meaning or allegorical significance from a passage or a particular story, and we find this you know, riddled throughout the book of Genesis, I find it personally best to allow the New Testament to define the moments where we should read into a passage something between the lines. So often in the attempt to come across as insightful or novel, pastors will read into the text things that aren't in the text. Always remember this, and this is something that we'll use. 
The best commentary for the Old Testament is the New Testament. Finally, I also believe it's wise to resist a common tendency to become overly dogmatic on a section of Scripture that doesn't actually present any dogma. Refusing to speculate on a topic God intentionally chose to remain rather silent or vague concerning isn't dodging an issue of controversy. Rather, it's demonstrating wisdom and how you teach a passage. It's a truth that where God places a period, man should not place a question mark. Speculating beyond what the text says is just that, speculation, and I'm not going to waste your time with it. Furthermore, though it requires a measure of humility, when faced with a complex complexity within the text, I really don't see any problems being honest with you and saying, you know what? In regards to what this is saying, I have not the slightest clue because the text doesn't tell me. And that's not an admission of lack of intelligence or trying to avoid something that might rustle a few feathers. In all honesty, if you find a pastor who has an answer to every question, well, they're prideful and self-deceived because only God has all the answers. So first, I'm going to faithfully teach the text. We need to get that out there. It's important. Going through Genesis, we're going to stay to the text. Refrain from going on rabbit trails. Secondly, and I think this is also important, we're going to seek to stay true to the context. For starters, Jewish scholars, early church fathers, and more specifically and importantly, Jesus, all believe that Moses authored the first five books of the Bible, which include the book of Genesis. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we're told, and beginning post-resurrection at Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus taught the disciples all of the scriptures, but how is that qualified? It begins with Moses, Genesis, and goes all the way through the prophets. So Jesus affirms here, scripture affirms Moses is the author. And yet, while it is true that Moses is attributed with authorship, you can't overlook the fact that Moses authoring Genesis does present a glaring problem. Though Mo could write Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from a first-person perspective. Why? Well, he was a reliable eyewitness. The same can't exactly be said for the book of Genesis. Not only was Moses born 2,500 years following the creation of Adam, but Moses was born some 500 years after the death of Abraham. It's only logical that we ask, that we consider, that we address whether or not the historical account of Genesis can be trusted at all, especially if Moses is the author. Now, one of the great myths surrounding Moses' authorship is that he received Genesis via oral tradition. And, and that's a problem, right? Because we know that oral traditions prove to be incredibly inaccurate and give room for embellishment over time. And yet, it's important to point out that Genesis was not passed on through oral tradition. Instead, the evidence from Genesis itself presents Moses 
as actually being more of a compiler or a historian of the origins rather than being the actual author. Let me explain. There are 11 verses scattered throughout Genesis that read this. These are the generations of. If you go to c316.tv, there's a whole list of them. I'm not going to read them all out. Throughout the book, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 37, verse 2. And this is significant. For the word generations in the Hebrew means literally origins, Genesis, or, or history. It can even, in, in, in Hebrew, kind of mean family origin or family history. The phrase could be translated, these are the record of the origins of fill in the blank. Now, many scholars see these repeated statements as evidence that Moses actually took written documents from the eyewitness participants of the events themselves, records that had been passed down from generation to generation and simply compiled them into one singular document, our first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And note, the transference of these documents from the original authors to Moses would not have been all that incredible or outlandish. According to the genealogical records contained in Genesis, think about it, Noah would have been alive at the same time as Seth, as Adam's son, right? Cain killed Abel and ran away. They made another one, Seth. So Noah would have been alive at the same time as Adam's son. Not only that, but then Noah theoretically would have been alive to have met Abraham. If you take the genealogy and the records were covering 2,500 years, people lived a long time. Noah alive at the time of Seth. Noah lives long enough to, in theory, meet Abraham. So documents being handed down within the same family, mind you, is not that crazy of a concept. Three or four generations, and it gets itself to Moses. Aside from this, it should be pointed out, I can't emphasize it enough, Jesus trusted the historical reliability of a literal view of Genesis. And how do we know this? He refers directly to details contained in the first seven chapters, an astounding 15 times. Which brings us back to the context. Why did Moses compile these documents into Genesis and make it the very first book of the Torah. Now, while it's true, the word Genesis literally means beginnings. It's the book of beginnings. It lives up to the title by giving us the origins of virtually everything. The universe, life, earth, man, woman, marriage, children, evil, sin, judgment, redemption, language, order, government, if you've ever wondered why you're wearing clothes, Genesis gives you the answer to it. You want to know why there are continents? Continental drift examined in the book of Genesis, and the list could go on and on and on. So it gives you the origin. 
Imagine the questions if you didn't have the book of Genesis. Now, in doing so, Genesis, addressing origins, it does something important because it answers critical questions, existential questions, right? By giving us the origins, it lets us know why we exist. It tells us why the world is messed up. It explains the meaning of life. And yet, while Genesis provides us all of these things, it's not Moses' fundamental purpose in presenting and giving us Genesis. His, his, his intention is actually much deeper in recounting four events where God interjected himself directly into human affairs. Creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel, as well as then recording four people that God specifically interacted with, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Moses, aside from giving the origins, Moses compiles Genesis because he wants to illustrate to the nation of Israel, a group of people who had been slaves, had been miraculously set free, had been given the law, had come to the land of promise and totally blown it. And now are wandering the wilderness for 40 years thinking we have totally blown it. So Moses presents Genesis to tell them what? That they were still and would always be God's chosen people for one reason, grace. Grace. If I were to ask you, what is the most grace-centric book of the Bible? You could easily point to Paul's letter to the Romans or the one that he wrote to the churches in Galatia. And yet, I think the strongest argument can be made for the book of Genesis. Consider that not only does Genesis recount God's interactions with humanity prior to the law, which was given to Moses in Exodus 20, but every single scriptural argument made by the New Testament writers advocating God's grace pulls its arguments directly from the pages of Genesis. In a profound sense, what Romans and Galatians soundly communicate doctrinally, it is Genesis that illustrates for us practically. It is by design that within every verse of this book, you will see the genesis of or the origins of God's amazing grace. Reminding God's people of God's grace is the context for Genesis. The fact is that every single story in Genesis, it oozes God's grace. Instead of law or some measure to stand up to of worthiness, Genesis does something radical. It presents for us example after example after example of men and women who, through simple faith and God's promises, come to experience the transforming power of God's amazing grace. This is the main thing we're going to keep as the main thing as we work our way through Genesis. One more thought before we start. I want to put your mind at ease this morning by letting you know I am fully aware 
that there are 50 chapters in Genesis, which break down to a total of 1,533 verses. I've even done the math. There were six chapters in our previous series in Galatians, which totaled 149 verses. We did 19 studies through Galatians, averaging approximately 7.8 verses a study. Meaning, at my normal pace, this series through Genesis might well go 197 weeks, or approximately 3.78 years. Rest assured, rest assured, I only plan to spend the next three years or so in Genesis. It'll be okay. I say that knowing that we're only going to actually get to three verses this morning. So let's just get there. Let's just get there. Genesis 1, verse 1. If you don't know where that is, it's at the very beginning. This is the easiest place for you to find. We read, In the beginning, God. Uh, we got to pause. We won't take those type of pauses later in the chat. But, but here, those words, in the beginning, God. You know, we've noted already that Genesis is a book of origins. With one glaring, rather obvious exception, God. Like the Bible simply opens with this statement. In the beginning, there was God. In the beginning, God. Like, honestly, these four words lend to vastly more questions than they provide answers. And yet, in the beginning, God is all we're told. It's all we're given. In the beginning, there was God. Meaning, before the beginning, God already existed. Logically, it stands to reason that if God existed before the beginning, he had himself no beginning. Though vague, these four words do communicate a lot about God. Because only God existed before the beginning, we can reason that God is infinite. And everything else in our universe is finite. Whether we know of it or we don't know of it, in the beginning there was God who was infinite and everything else is finite. This means that God alone is all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, and always everywhere. It also stands to reason that God is a non-material being, making him entirely separated from everything else in the material world. Therefore, God operates in an independent reality and is only knowable if he chooses to make himself known. It's the difference between discovering something, discovery. It's always existed. We just didn't know about it. And we found it. 
We went to the depths of the ocean or we went to the moon and we found something that had always been there. It had just been waiting for us to see it. Discovery. And yet in the beginning, God is only possible for God to reveal himself. It's the difference between revelation and discovery. The only way you can know anything about God is not to discover it, but for him to reveal it in the beginning God. Beyond these things, the Hebrew word we have for God, right here, verse 1, is Elohim, which is interesting. For while the singular word for God is El, E-L, the addition of the I am, Elohim, actually makes it plural. The word could be translated as God's. And yet, this is not an argument for polytheism, what we find here in Elohim is a plural word being used in the singular tense. We see the same dynamic emerge again in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 when we're told the Lord, Jehovah, our God, Elohim, is one, Akkad, one Lord, Jehovah. Right from the beginning, God reveals himself. He makes it known to us that he's one, yet he's more than one. Like this reality becomes even more pronounced when just a few verses later in Genesis 1 verse 26, we're told that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We'll come to see this as being the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? Contrary to many misconceptions, God, in the beginning, God created, God didn't create. He didn't set the whole process into motion out of some need. Like it wasn't as though that God created man because he was up wherever he was before the beginning, lonely. Like he's like, I just want some friends, man. Someone to play some dominoes with. I'll make man. And somehow God had a country accent at that point. I don't know. But anyway, it's not as though God was like lonely or that he was bored. Like, man, infinity's a long time. I guess I should get busy doing something. It's not even that God was so insecure that he was like, I need to create man so he can worship me. I just need, you know, I'm kind of blue. I could use a pick-me-up. I'll create humanity to worship me so I'll feel good about myself. And none of those things are true. You see, the, the, this, this word Elohim, plural word used in the singular, defining this triune nature, we'll see it more. What it tells us is that God and this triune nature existed in perpetual community. God was not needy. God self-contained. Like consider what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 5. He prayed, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God, was glor God does not need us to be glorified. He was already in glory. Then in verse 24 of the same chapter, Jesus in the same prayer says, Father, I desire that they also 
whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you've given me. And then note, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Because of this triune nature and the perpetual community therein, God was able to love and to be loved independently of anyone or anything else. So, why then did God create man? The psalmist ponders the same thing in Psalms chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, when he's saying, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, this is his question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Honestly, this is one of those examples. I have no idea why God created man. Like I know, I know man. I look at him in the mirror. Why God would create that is probably the most perplexing question in the universe. Why? Got no idea. <laughs> Not only that, but it gets even more complicated, that question. When you consider what we do know was happening with God before the beginning. Do you realize Scripture tells us some things about God, some things that were happening before chapter 1, verse 1. Before in the beginning, we know some things about God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 6, Paul said that before Genesis 1, 1, God knew you, loved you, and had a plan for your life. He wrote, he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of what? Of his grace. And if that weren't crazy enough, before Genesis 1.1, God also knew that you'd rebel against his love. He knew what would be required then of Jesus for restoration to take place. It's at that point I'm out, right? Like if you're God, you're like, I'm gonna, I love man, I'm gonna create man. And then you, you know what man's gonna do. And you're like, done. No beginning. <laughs> Back up. And yet God knew what would happen. In 1 Peter 1 verses 18 through 21, we read, you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Note, foreordained before the foundation of the world. So God knew before the foundation of the world that redemption would require the blood of Jesus, who then was raised from the dead and given so that your faith and hope are in God. Like in light of all of this, the very reality, there was even a beginning when God knew full well what was going to happen is nothing more than possibly the greatest demonstration, while completely unexplainable, of his love for you motivated by what? 
his grace towards you. The fact that it opens in the beginning when God knew everything that would happen, it only occurred because of his grace. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according, and note this, to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began. Literally, before the beginning. So back to verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, this word created, or bara, it means to create something out of nothing. Like this Hebrew word is only used concerning God in all of Scripture. God created all things out of nothing. Like understand, no one but God in this context can create. Like at best, all that you and I can do is reorganize things that already exist. You can build a house. You cannot create a house. That would be awesome, but you can't do it. You got to get all the materials together and form it and put it together. You can build it. You can't create it. Like you can compose a piece of music, but you didn't create the notes or the sounds or the rhythms. Even an epiphany, which at one point we thought was the gift of the gods, we know now to be the unrational connections of thoughts that already exist buried deep in the left hemisphere of your brain. You don't come up with anything out of nothing. So, how did God do that? How did God create out of nothing? I have no clue. And you know why I have no clue? Because from the text, God chose not to divulge that information. All the text tells us is God created with no explanation as to how. That said, scientifically, the idea conveyed in verse 1 is rather brilliant because it presents a central component necessary for the governing law behind cause and effect. You see, for cause and effect to exist at all, fundamentally, for everything to be in motion, philosophically, there has to be, and this is going to be kind of a, a word, a phrase that's going to kind of pop your brain, so just bear with me. For cause and effect to exist, one cause, effect, effect to cause, cause to effect, there has to be what is called an uncaused cause that sets everything else then in the universe, into motion. Honestly, what is the alternative to Genesis 1-1? Either God was uncaused and intentionally, why we don't know why, but intentionally chose to set everything into motion. It's option A. Option B, everything has existed forever and over billions and billions of years, by chance, improbability, all of this stuff that was chaos organized into everything that we see. It's one or the other. The problem 
is that the assumed eternal nature of matter, it violates the law of infinite regress, which states that it would be impossible if matter existed forever to pass through an infinite series of moments to reach today, if matter has always been. Additionally, and as a matter of pure practicality, like name one thing in your world that naturally moves from chaos to order without direct intervention. Do your children's rooms organize themselves? If they're in chaos, they will remain in a perpetual state of continued chaos until what happens? Your child marches into that room under direct orders to organize. Chaos never goes to order without intervention. So if the world existed in chaos originally, how is it now in order? Because it is an incredible order, radical order. Your car naturally descends to chaos inside. I've seen some of them. Trash and garbage. It stacks up, it piles up. It will never clean itself. Like you can never just kind of step back. It's funny, I say that and people are poking each other all over the room. <laughs> He's seen your car. No, the only ones is Creighton. And yes, I'm referring to Creighton. The point is that you have one option or the other. Like the decision that everyone faces when it comes to origin, when it comes to the explanation of this, it's rather simple. Either you and your world happen by chance, which means it's meaningless, and you're meaningless, or you were intentionally created by a God that loves you and has a purpose for everything that occurs in your life. You make the decision. It's up to you. Daniel Fusco, he observed about Genesis 1-1, he says, in just 10 words, the Bible becomes radically controversial. Damien Kyle, he remarked that verse 1, in its controversy, goes against every world philosophy. He says, it refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism because God is transcendent from what he created. It refutes polytheism because one God created all things. It refutes materialism for all matter had a beginning. It refutes dualism for God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. It refutes evolution because God created all things. The truth of the matter is that if God, if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if you can believe that, if you can accept just those 10 words, you'll have no problems with anything else that follows. Genesis 1.1 is the most well-read verse in Scripture because it determines if you get to verse 2. So, what did God create? First, God by his very decision to create Note, by his very decision to create, what happened? God created a beginning. Think about it. The moment God, for whatever reason, 
decided to initiate the creation process, that very moment, time began. Then we're told that he created the heavens, or literally, uh, in the original language, a plurality of space, as well as the earth, or matter. In the beginning, or the moment God created, he created both space and then matter to fill that space. What is interesting about Genesis 1.1 and the verses to follow is that God, he does not seek in any way to argue with humanity concerning his existence, which is kind of silly, right? God arguing with you that he exists. No, but you don't. But, but I do. No. Like, like, he just doesn't go there. Like, he makes no attempt to answer the unanswerable. However, this is the brilliance of Genesis 1. What happens? God creates, and in doing so, establishes right from the beginning his creation as being evidence of his existence. Psalms 19, verses 1 and 3, the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, day does what? It utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Creation transcends language, and it reveals God. Romans 1 verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things, what? That are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Creation testifies that God exists. It's the argument of design which not only states that design demands a designer, but postulates that the greater the design, the greater the designer. Like no one gets into an airplane and thinks, man, look at this thing. It takes us up into the sky where we fly around like a bird. That billions of years, this thing just kind of whittled itself out of nature. Like you, if, you, if you saw an airplane and you thought that, you'd never get into it. Like greater design, greater designer. And when you begin to look at the great complexities of our universe, what do they tell us? How infinite the knowledge of God. The, the creativity of God. Verse 2. I told you we're at a rapid pace. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. After creating time, space, and matter, essential for the universe, time, space, and matter, verse 2 now describes for us the state of the earth. That the earth were literally the material building blocks of the physical universe were without form and void. In the Hebrew, this simply means that they were formless. That they were in this place of chaos, or, or better put, just unorganized. While in verse 1, 
God created the essential elements for the universe. Verse 2 simply describes the conditions right before God began to organize matter into various forms. It would also seem that the earth in this state was covered in water or the deep upon which there existed both darkness as well as the Spirit of God actively hovering over the face of the waters. Now, where did the water come from? I don't know. Doesn't tell me. I've got no clue where the water came from. I just know it existed. So I'm assuming that it's part of these basic building blocks defining the earth. God created the heavens and the earth, that there was water, that water was part of this. The word hovering, it's interesting. It means to move or to shake, literally it can be found in other places, to flutter. That the Spirit of God was hovering, fluttering, shaking, moving over the face of the waters. And since this is an active verb, many have come to see this as being describing ways of energy being propagated by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. Some even reason that at this point, there seems to be some innuendo within the text itself, that the Spirit of God brings earth in this moving and this fluttering and this shaking into a spherical shape, a circular form, and then sets it upon a rotation, that the rotation of the earth is initiated right here. Now, regardless, I am struck by the notion that verse 2 presents the world covered in darkness. Like in, in, in its poetic nature, this word darkness, like it conjures up images, right? The earth was without form and void and darkness. Like in its poetic nature, it just, it conjures up feelings, right? That darkness can be illustrative of, of lifelessness, chaos, disorder, even disorientation, right? Like when you're like, I'm in a, I'm in a dark place right now. You use that word to describe, like, I just, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what the deal is. I'm just lost. Darkness. According to the New Testament, darkness is illustrative of a life in sin. And yet, what I find significant is that even in the midst of such darkness, verse 2 tells us something very important that the Spirit of God was still actively stirring, moving, and preparing the way for what? Verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Think about it for a moment. In our world, darkened by sin, it is the Spirit of God, right? Active, moving, stirring, fluttering. How? Through the Word of God. And it's through that Word of God that brings forth in our lives what? The light of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Paul observed, For it is the light, for it is the God who commanded light, to shine out of darkness, referencing back to this very verse, 
who now has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Within the very creation account, within the very first three verses, we have an incredible picture presented of the gospel. The way in which God prepares us for new creation. The way that God works within us new creation. By His grace, God has sent His Spirit to prepare our hearts that while we were in darkness, we might receive his word, which gloriously declares what? Let there be light, and then there was light. You remember the day of darkness and how the spirit was at work and how there was a moment where you heard God's word and what happened? The darkness in your heart was driven away by Jesus. Let there be light. Then with Jesus, right? The light of the world shining forth in our lives. What conditions are set? The conditions are set whereby then his word can continue to speak the work of new creation. Like think about it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. It was void. There was darkness. The spirit was moving. So God said, let there be light. And there was light. And what happened next? Darkness, there was spirit, now there was light. The conditions exist for the rest of creation to take place. And in our lives, what takes place? God created me, but there was darkness. And I was lost and I was disoriented and I didn't know where to go or what to do. And yet there was this moving, this drawing, this spirit. And then I came to church or I opened up his word and I heard, I heard that By hearing, there's faith. The Spirit was stirring and God spoke and I received it and my life filled with his light. Jesus entered my heart. The light of the world came within. And what presents moving forward with Jesus? He now begins in his light to work a creation in me. He begins to take what is disorganized. He begins to take what is chaotic. He begins to take this life and through his light and his word begins to fasten and to shape and to mold. And this is the picture we have here. The poetic nature of these verses. It gives the idea of God having that chunk of clay. There's no shape. It's without form. It's void. And yet he begins to spin it. He begins to place his touch. And he begins to form creation initiated by God through a moving of the Spirit and the filling of your heart with his light, the Son. Jesus. And then how was everything else created? as we'll see next Sunday, there's a series of declarations that happen, how? Through his word. God speaks. The spirit moves, the light shines, and it's God's word that continues to speak into our hearts all things out of nothing. And that is the beginning of the origins of God's grace.